Let's pray together. Father, so much of this life is painful. So much of this life is filled with suffering and sorrow and toil. And yet, Lord, we know and trust that you are good. We know and trust, Lord, that you are the sovereign God of all creation. That, Lord, in every circumstance of our lives, whether we have much or little, whether we have joy or pain, you are still God. And so, Lord, I pray that you would grow our faith. That, Lord, you would cause us to rest and trust in your goodness. An undeserved goodness toward us, Lord, because we, we are not faithful. We are not righteous. We are not holy, as you have called us to be. And yet, Lord, you do not forsake your promises. You do not shrink back from us. Instead, Father, you continue to draw us near. You continue to hold us in your hands, Lord. Lord, we pray that you would forgive us for our sin for our faithlessness, for our unrighteousness, Lord. And that, Lord, in these things, you would draw us into Christ-likeness. Father, please speak to your people this morning through your word. Use this time, Father, to bless and encourage and strengthen us as you have promised to do. Change our hearts and our minds today, Lord, that Christ would be enough for us. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Please turn, if you would, in your Bibles to Psalm 17. Psalm 17. Several years ago, my family, and when I say my family, I mean myself and Hannah, and, and Evelyn was just a baby at the time, we were involved in a situation where someone that we tried to help crossed some lines that could not be crossed, and, and we had to kind of say, okay, no more. And as a result, this person decided to go throughout our church, throughout our families, and slander us. Tell things about us that were not even remotely close to the truth. And one of the things that we 
tried to do in that time was to trust in the Lord with whatever happened. It was tempting to go and to seek to try to mitigate damage or correct falsehoods, to defend our honor. But instead, we chose to do nothing, to pray and to wait. And we we committed together that if someone came to us and asked us questions, that we would answer them, but we were not going to go out and seek to be proactive. And over time, the Lord in His goodness vindicated us. Many of the people who heard the slanderous lies believed them for a time, And then later, they came to realize that they had been deceived. Psalm 17 is about about a situation like that. It is a prayer made into a song, a prayer for vindication in the midst of being wronged. Someone lying about David, and he is crying out for the Lord To vindicate him in these things. Hearing what I shared with you at the beginning of this introduction. Many of you likely also thought of a time in your life. Where those things happened to you. Someone decided for whatever reason. That they were going to lie about you. Or slander you. Or try to destroy your reputation. And the question for all of us in this very real circumstance of life is how does the Bible call upon us to handle these things? What guidance does the Scripture give us for how those who love the Lord should respond to these things? That's a question that we are going to strive to answer today as we look at Psalm 17. But there is a larger underlying question that we have to think about. How do we think about suffering in this life? How should we, as the people of God, think about suffering in this life? How do we think about the ongoing struggle of life in this world? Some of you maybe have thought, maybe you've heard, I know that I have heard, if God is really for us, if he's really good, why does life hurt so much? My hope and my prayer is that our time in the text today will give us help in how we consider these things and that the Lord will use the scriptures for our good. So let's look together at Psalm 17, and we'll look at the first five verses to start with, where we will first see unjust accusations. Unjust accusations. You'll see on our sermon listening guides that we have four points this morning, and that is our first unjust accusations. Let's read together from Psalm 17, beginning in verse 1. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence let my vindication come, let your eyes behold the right. 
You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. Psalm 17 begins with a plea to the Lord. David makes a triplicate request. He asks the Lord to hear, to attend, to give ear. In the Hebrew language, there's not really punctuation. In the English language, if we wanted to really emphasize something that we were writing down, we would use an exclamation point. My mother, the English teacher, taught me that. See, Mom, I did pay attention sometimes. But in the Hebrew language, there is no exclamation point. So one of the ways that writers in Hebrew would emphasize something is they would repeat it. They would say it over and over again, sometimes using different phrases or words just to kind of add a little flavor or spice. Sometimes they use the same word. Famously, in Isaiah, we see holy, holy, holy. But here David uses different phrases to convey the same thing, but he wants it to be known that this is an urgent, significant, meaningful request. This is a situation that is of extreme importance to David. And we get a window into what is happening right here in the first verse. David says, give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. David is emphasizing here in verse 1 that he is telling the truth. Which means that there are people who are lying about him. There are things being said about David, about his actions, about his character, whatever it may be, that are not true. And David is emphasizing that he is calling out to the Lord from lips free of deceit. It seems as though the lies that are being spread are starting to gain traction. Sometimes people lie, doesn't really go anywhere. Sometimes people lie and it picks up steam. And it seems that that is what is happening here. Have you ever had to deal with someone spreading slanderous lies about you? Have you ever been in the situation that David is in? A person or a group who is determined to destroy your reputation, to destroy your livelihood, or even your very life, who will stop at nothing to harm you. When these things happen, we have a natural human tendency to seek to get even, or at the very least, to try to set the record straight. Because none of us enjoy being lied about. None of us enjoy people saying things about us that are not true. I'm bad enough as it is. The last thing I need is people making up other things. The good news is that these things place us in good company. 
the company of Jesus Christ. Jesus says in Matthew 5.11, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. But, but please understand that there's a key word in there that Jesus says, and that word is falsely. Matthew 5.11 is not a blessing for people who are doing wicked things and people talk about them. Jesus is saying you are blessed when people are slandering you. This is about people who are faithfully striving to follow after the Lord and are slandered or attacked by those who aren't. And the underlying reason that is happening when we place things in a spiritual perspective is that those people desire to persist in their sin rather than submitting to the Lord. When we are living righteously, when we are striving to be like Jesus Christ and we come under these kinds of attacks, we need to understand that it's not really us who is being attacked. These are people who are in open, constant, persistent rebellion against the Lord and His Word. And they are attacking you because they can't directly attack Him. That's what's really happening. David emphasizes in verses 3 through 5 that he is someone who is doing what's right and being slandered. He says, you have tried my heart, you have visited me by night, you have tested me and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress with regard to the works of man. By the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. Using language like, you have tested me and you will find nothing, David is claiming innocence in the allegations against him. The claims that David makes here are strong and they require us to really think about them. Because if we ask the question of whether David was truly blameless in the ways that he's saying in a God's righteousness sense, then the answer is no. David is not blameless in the big picture sense of the word blameless. If the Lord truly tested David, if the Lord truly examined David's heart, he would certainly find wrongdoing there. He would certainly find wickedness there. Because none of us are righteous on our own. However, the scriptures are infallible. They are true in everything that they say. So we have to understand how these two things work together. How can a man who is a sinner say that he's blameless? The answer lies in understanding the difference between what is known as positional righteousness and practical righteousness. And I'm, I'm getting off in kind of the theologian weeds here a little bit, but this is important because we need to understand how to talk about these things the right way. Positional righteousness is righteousness that is based upon our position. In other words, Christ's righteousness in us. Because we are in Christ, we are righteous in a holiness sense in an eternal sense because we have Christ's righteousness in 
us by virtue of our position. So that is positional righteousness. Practical righteousness is righteousness that is based on our practice. It's based on our practice. In other words, our spirit-empowered obedience to God's word. So positional righteousness has to do with our position in Christ, and that is an eternal, everlasting righteousness. Practical righteousness has to do with our righteousness in certain situations. You're tracking with me here? So David, in saying these things, is talking about this specific situation. He is saying, the things that I am being accused of, I am innocent of. And Lord, if you search my heart to find evidence of me doing these things, you will find nothing. We don't exactly know when David wrote Psalm 17. It's very likely that it was written during the time period of him fleeing from Saul at which time Saul was telling everybody who had ears that David was trying to steal the kingdom. That David sought to kill him and assassinate him and take the throne for himself. That David wanted to murder his entire family just so he could seize power. Well, we know, thanks to the recording of David's actions in Scripture, that that is not true. That David had multiple opportunities to kill Saul He was urged to do so by his men in ways that some of us would say, the Lord gave him into your hand, David. And David righteously said, no, I will not touch the Lord's anointed. And so in this situation, David truly is blameless. He is practically righteous. We need to understand the difference between these things. Because we are called to be practically righteous. But while we are practically righteous, it is only possible by virtue of the fact that we have positional righteousness. It is only because of our status in Christ that we can do what is right. Because of the Holy Spirit in us, we now have an ability that is foreign to the rest of humanity. And that ability is the ability to not sin. We have that ability because of the work of Jesus Christ in us. We just saw last week that David rightly understood that he has no good apart from God. We have to hold these two things together. So because of that, because of David's practical righteousness, by virtue of his positional righteousness, David can truthfully say in this situation that his feet have not slipped. And it is not David's own righteousness that has kept him from sin. David's life shows us that he does not have inherent righteousness. He is a sinful man who does not obey the word of the Lord in all things. One of the most staggering things in all of Scripture, as you read through 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings, is when you realize that David, 
of all the kings, wasn't even having the Passover celebrated in the nation of Israel. That, that's incredible to think about. This man, this man who is a man after God's own heart, was not obeying fully the word of God. So it is not David's own righteousness that has kept him from sin, but the righteousness of Christ that was given to him. This is the doctrine of imputed righteousness. Imputed righteousness. And if you, if you want to remember that term, but you're, you're not sure if you can, I'm going to tell you the trick that I use to help me to remember it. Imputation is the opposite of amputation. So amputation, we're all familiar with that. It's where something is removed from your body. Imputation is the opposite. Something is added, implanted onto your body. We have been given the implanted righteousness of Jesus because we don't have any of ourselves. By the work of the Spirit within us, we too can be truly blameless in these things. This is the way to respond to unjust accusations. Living righteously to the point that people who know you would know that these things are surely false. I, I know most of you fairly well. If someone came to me and told me things about you, I probably wouldn't believe these wicked things because I know you well enough to know, I don't think that that's true. If somebody came to me and said, I saw Miss Diane McClendon at the park and she was beating up toddlers. <laughs> not with that broken toe, she's not. <laughs> but I, I wouldn't believe that. I know her well enough to know she does not have the character of someone who goes to the park to beat up toddlers. And that's a silly example, but you understand my point. We are to live our lives in a way that is worthy of the gospel, as Paul says in Philippians. That's the calling upon our lives. And if we truly do that, then when people slander us, the people who truly know us are going to go, yeah, I don't buy that. I don't think that that's true. And listen, I don't want to minimize this and make it sound like, this is so easy, guys, just do this. It's not easy. The language that David uses here helps us to recognize how difficult this is. David says in verse 5, My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. It's easy to read over that really quickly, but if you really think about what he's saying there, it's giving the kind of imagery of a treacherous journey. Like you're walking along on a steep cliffside. And it's an old path and it's kind of crumbling and to, to, to one side of you is a cliff, and to the other side of you is nothing. I have nightmares about this kind of thing, by the way. And David says, I have kept my feet firmly on the path. They have not slipped. It's not easy. But by the Lord's help, we can stay on that path. By the Lord's help, we can make war against the sinfulness that is in our flesh and stay on the Lord's path. We can do that. And one of the ways that we can do that, and one of the ways that we should respond in these kinds of situations, is that we should call upon the Lord. It's our second point this morning. Call upon the Lord. Let me read verses 6 through 9 of Psalm 17. David says, I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. 
Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. Instead of going on a PR offensive to defend his honor, David turns to the Lord for help. It is tempting for us, as I said previously, to want to get out ahead of those who are slandering or attacking us and want to make sure that everyone knows that we're not what these people are saying that we are. We want to do damage control. But our vindication is not something that we should seek to accomplish on our own, which is why David is crying out to the Lord. And he knows that the Lord will answer because of his love for his people. A steadfast love. A love that holds firm. It's the kind of love that inclines an ear to his people. It leans in to listen. Before I was a father, I used to think about what it would look like to incline your ear. And I used to picture, oh, like when you're talking to a little kid. Now, you, you all know my children. I don't have to incline a thing to hear them talk because they are loud. They get that from me, obviously. But that's the imagery that David is using here, like a father who bends down to listen intently to his child. He turns his attention. He leans in to listen. The Lord has the kind of love that gives refuge, protection from our adversaries. And when I say protection from our adversaries, we need to be really clear here. Because there are plenty of false teachers out there who will tell you, well, the Lord loves you. No one can ever touch you. No one can ever harm you. Brothers and sisters, that is not true. What is true is that even if our adversaries take our lives, they can never snatch us out of the Father's hand. That is the true refuge that we have. Knowing that even if our lives are extinguished, the Lord securely holds us in his hand. David uses a phrase here in verse 8. He says, keep me as the apple of your eye. You've probably heard that before. It's a very old phrase. If you've never known what it meant before, prepare to be enlightened. It's a reference to the pupil. We know now that the pupil, and this is so freaky to think about, is a literal hole in your eye that expands and contracts to let light in. But they didn't really understand that back then. They just said, hey, that black dot in your eye kind of looks like an apple. That's what we'll call it. We'll call it the apple, the apple of your eye. I'm not even joking. That's literally how that phrase came about. And what it literally means is, keep your eyes focused on me. You know where someone is looking by looking at where their pupils are pointing. Parents, am I right? When you tell your children, look at me when I'm talking to you, you can always tell if their pupils are here, they're looking at you. If their pupils are over here, they're not looking at you. And so David is saying here, keep me as the apple of your eye. Don't take your eyes off of me, Lord. Because if you do, my enemies will overtake me. A couple years ago, my family had the opportunity to go 
over to um, Pismo Beach in Florida. And while we were there, it was very windy. The waves were really strong. And Evelyn desperately wanted to go out into the water, or as she called it, the big ocean. Not the ocean, but that's what she wanted to call it. But the waves were too big, and she was afraid. And so she said, Daddy, will you take me out there? And I said, sure, I will, honey. And so I carried her out, and we didn't get very far because she started to panic a little bit. And, and she says, Daddy, Daddy, I need you to look at me. And I was like, okay. And I'm looking at her, and she goes, don't let me go. And I was like, I'm not going to let you go, sweetie. I'm holding you tightly. And I looked away for a second. No, Daddy, you got to look at me. Don't let me go. Because in her mind, me looking into her eyes connected with me holding on to her. And even though I still had her securely in my grasp, when I looked away, even for a moment, all of a sudden, she no longer felt secure. All of a sudden, she no longer felt like my dad's not going to let me go. But when I looked at her, she felt secure. She knew I would not let her go. That's the same kind of imagery that David is using here. This language, him saying, keep me as the apple of your eye, is David saying, Lord, if you look away even for a moment, my enemies can overtake me and I can be dead. Keep your eyes focused on me, Lord. And so David rightly calls out to the Lord. And this is the same thing that we are supposed to do. It is extraordinarily difficult for us to not take action in these kinds of circumstances. It's extraordinarily difficult. But we must remember what Paul says in Romans chapter 12. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. David lived this out. If this psalm was indeed written about Saul's actions and words toward David... David lived out what Paul wrote in Romans 12. The story that comes to my mind in particular is the time that Saul went to go relieve himself in a cave, alone in the dark, and it just so happened, and I say that very sarcastically, because the Lord is sovereign. He goes into the cave where David and his men are hiding. And so David's men say, David, the Lord has given Saul into your hand. Go. This is your chance. This is your moment. He'll never see you coming. He won't smell you coming, for sure. Now's your opportunity. And David doesn't do that. He sneaks up and he cuts off a portion of Saul's garment. And he even feels guilty about that. But what happens in that moment? When he goes out of the cave and Saul realizes that his life was in David's hand, briefly, Saul repents. Saul relents of his aggressiveness against David. It doesn't last, but it does happen. 
And it does show us what can happen. Brothers and sisters, there are two outcomes in a situation like this. Either A, the person who is seeking to do you harm will repent, or B, they will face the wrath of God at judgment. It'll be one of those two things. And let me let you in on a secret that you may not have understood. No matter what kind of harm you think you can do to a person who has wronged you, the wrath of God is infinitely worse. It's infinitely worse. And so the Lord says, leave it to me. You show love to your enemies. You kill them with kindness. That's what we do. We do not overcome, we don't be overcome by evil, but we overcome evil with good. One of the difficulties of the Christian life is living out those words and not trying to hurt those who hurt us. But what the scriptures show us is that we love our enemies. We do good to them while simultaneously praying as David prayed in Psalm 3:7. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. You see, what David says here is speaking of the Lord's action against the wicked, not against a person. The way that we should function and think about these things is that we should want the Lord to eradicate wickedness in general. Not just, hey God, this guy's really giving me a hard time. I'd appreciate it if you'd knock his teeth out. We love the person because they are made in the image of God. And we hate their wickedness because their wickedness is an affront to the image of God. And so we as Christians, as the people of God, we trust in the Lord to take action when the time is right. And until then, we trust in Him and show kindness to those who are wronging us. Because although they may seem to be prospering in this life, their reward is fleeting. And that's our next section, verses 10 through 14, the wealth of the wicked. And I know some of you are looking at your watch right now and being like, oh, we're only on point three now. I promise it's not that much longer. The wealth of the wicked, verses 10 through 14, says this. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths, they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. From men by your hand, O Lord. From men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children and they leave their abundance to their infants. David moves here into a description of the wicked. David says they do not have compassion on those who are weak. I think we need to recognize that someone who does not have compassion on the weak is about as anti-God as you can get. Because the Psalms are filled with language about how the Lord has compassion on us. How the Lord remembers our frame. He knows that we are dust. 
The Lord's actions and love and kindness toward us are a result of his compassion or his pity. The wicked do not act in a godly manner. They do not regard other people in a godly manner. They see those who are weaker as those who they can take advantage of. And David says here, he says, they close their hearts to pity. It's not just that they think it and decide against it. It's that they don't even consider it. They block it out completely to the point that their actions are instinctively to harm instead of help. That's who the wicked are. David also says that they are arrogant. With their mouths, they speak arrogantly. One of the things that we see over and over again in Scripture is that the Lord hates pride. He hates pride. Why is that such a big deal? Why is it such a big deal to be prideful, to be arrogant, to be haughty? Why does the Lord hate that so much? Well, because, like we saw last week in Psalm 16, our only good is God. For us to be arrogant is to try to elevate ourselves into the place of God, to say, I have done this. I have accomplished this. I earned this. I made this. It's mine. It's to say, I answer to no one. No one tells me what to do. I don't submit to any authority. I am my own authority. The arrogant do not recognize that God is the source of their very life and breath. That if God willed it, they would drop dead right there without a moment's notice. They are justified within themselves and it flows out in their speech. And in their arrogance, they seek to destroy others in order to build themselves up. Humanity tends to think that life is a zero-sum game. For me to have, that means you must not have. So I want, so I must take from you for me. That's what the wicked are doing. They're described in this passage as a lion seeking prey. David says they've surrounded our steps. They are ready to to cast us to the ground like a lion eager to tear. You see, we we are supposed to be different than the animals. The animals are wild beasts. They act on instinct. They do what comes natural to them without thinking. When a lion is hungry, it eats. A lion doesn't think to itself, oh, well, you know, I probably shouldn't eat that, zebra, that poor zebra. It's only got three legs. It, it would be really unkind to kill that three-legged zebra to eat it. I shouldn't do that. Lions don't think that way. Lions think, oh, easy lunch. The wicked think like animals. They act and behave like animals. They work and live in ways that just function off of instinct, off of internal desire. And our internal desires and our instincts are twisted and broken because of sin. And that's 
That's what they look like. That's what they act like. But we are called to be different from the animals because we are made in the image of God. The wicked resemble wild beasts in their lusts for wealth and pleasure and destruction. We are to be like God who have compassion on the weak and care for those around us. It leads David to cry out to the Lord to move on his behalf, striking, out, striking down those who are wicked. But he also recognizes that even if the Lord does not move in this way, the wealth of the wicked is found in this life only. Over and over again in the Psalms, David speaks about how it seems as though the wicked are prospering, but their prosperity is only in this life. And one day they're going to die. And all of their worldly gain, all of their wealth, all of their status, all of their power, none of it goes with them. And they stand before God and they are cast off into destruction because vengeance is his and he will repay. On the other hand, in verse 15, we see our satisfaction. We see our satisfaction. Where the wicked are satisfied with children, David says in verse 15, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. For those of us who are God's people, our reward is not in this life. Our reward is Him. And listen, I want you to, make, I want you to hear me really clearly. This is really important for us to understand because far too many Christians, if you ask them, what is the reward that you are given as a child of God? You know what they'll say? I get to go to heaven. Heaven's my reward. I get a mansion in the sky. The streets are made of gold. It's awesome. If that's what you think, you have your priorities out of whack. You see, it's tempting to read those descriptions of, of heaven and think about how beautiful it is, but let me challenge you a little bit to think differently. Because what I think is really happening there is I think the Lord wants us to see that the really valuable reward, the truly valuable reward we get is Him. And all of these so-called valuable things that are in this life, gold that is so pure that it looks like glass in heaven, that's just building materials. We walk on that. It's the sidewalk in heaven. The things that we regard so highly now are not things that we'll keep in the bank. They're things that we walk on. Because compared to the Lord Jesus Christ, they're not worth much. That's the idea here. Our reward is not getting to go to heaven and getting a mansion in the sky. Our reward is Jesus Christ. David recognizes this and is satisfied. Because what does he say? When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. He says, I will behold your face. Do you remember what the Lord said to Moses back in Exodus when Moses said, I, I want to sh show me your glory. I want to see you. The Lord said to Moses, no man can see my face and live. And David says, when I die and I open my eyes in life, 
I will see your face. The thing that no man can do in this life, I will do. You will be there and I will be satisfied by being in your presence. And so the question for all of us is, are you satisfied? If all you have is Jesus, is that enough for you? Is that truly enough? If every pleasure and gain of this life was ripped away from you, are you truly satisfied? Are you truly satisfied? And I know, all of us know the right answer is, well, yes, of course, absolutely. But if we really search our hearts, if we ask ourselves, is Jesus really my delight? I'm not sure that it would truly be. Yes, of course. And I can't say that for you. I, I can't peer into your heart. You may not even necessarily know what is in your heart, but the Lord does. But let me, let me help you key in on something here. If Christ is truly our delight, then death is something that we should, in a sense, long for. Death is something, in a sense, that we should long for. And the vast majority of Christians do not long for death. They do whatever they can to prolong their life. Now listen, I'm not saying, if you get sick, don't take medicine. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is, the number of Christians who have said, well, well I can't go and share the gospel there. It's dangerous. That's what I'm talking about. Well, well Pastor, I, I can't give sacrificially. What about, what about my needs? What about what I need to have? Those are the kinds of things that show us whether or not we truly long for death. Because Paul says in Philippians 1.21 famously, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What Paul means there is to say that as long as we still draw breath, our lives are to be spent in service of Jesus Christ and his gospel. Not do whatever you want. Have a great time. It's a real, it's a real downer up in heaven. Not, not much fun up there. So have all your partying down here. A lot of Christians really do think that way. But the whole point of being alive is to serve Jesus. Otherwise, the moment you become a Christian, the roof would open up and you'd just go straight to heaven. But Paul rightly says, as long as he lives, he is to serve Christ. But he knows that to die is gain. And Paul is so devoted to this that he literally says in the following verses, I know that churches like the church at Philippi still need me. And so I know I'm not going to die yet. Paul doesn't say, I really want to enjoy my retirement. I just bought an RV. I kind of want to travel up and down the coast. Paul says the churches still need me. So I know I'm not going to die yet. Paul's intention was to work until the day he died. And he did. And, he, and when I say work, I don't mean like a greeter at Walmart. I mean work for the kingdom. 
That's the way that we should think about these things. As Christians, we recognize that our hope lies in the resurrected Savior who first died at the hand of wicked men by unjust accusations. And Christ, who could have slain every last one of them with just a word, joyfully endured the cross for our sake. And so now, we hope in His resurrection, knowing that passing through death is the door to the fullness of His presence. And if we are clinging to life and to the things of this world, then our hope is not truly in Jesus. But if we are satisfied in the Lord... We know that no matter what comes, Christ is more than enough for us. And not only that, but we also need to understand that these hurtful things in this life are essential for our growth in Christlikeness, for our sanctification. This pain in this life is necessary for us. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He's talking about the thorn in his flesh. And he says this, he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am. When we seek out lives that are free from pain and free from struggle because we want blessings, we're actually missing out on the blessing. We're missing out on the blessing of Christlikeness, the greatest earthly blessing we can have. To be like Jesus is better than to be married for 80 years. To be like Jesus is better than to have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. To be like Jesus is better than anything you could ever have in this world. And so we face hardships and insults and calamities and persecutions. We face the pain of this life knowing that it is for our good. And trusting in the Lord for our vindication Recognizing that these things are cultivating in us a strength that we cannot possess of ourselves. It is growing our faith to be unshakable because Christ is enough. Let's pray. Father, we, we pray that, Lord, you would help us to rejoice in our sufferings. That, Lord, we, we would not respond the way that our flesh desires to respond when we are wronged or hurt. But that, Lord, we would trust in you. That we would see these things as being for our good. That, Lord, we would be satisfied by you. Lord, I pray that these things would be true of this church. That, Lord, you would root out worldliness and self-justification from us, Lord, that we would not be boastful or prideful, Father, but that we would be humble, knowing that all of our good comes from you. Help us, Lord, to long for death, because to die is gain. And help us, Lord, to love Jesus more than anything else. We pray these things in his name.
Amen.